Hello, this is Tom Williams, and you are listening to Talk Theater in Chicago's interview podcast. My very special guest this week is a gentleman who is retiring from Victory Gardens Theater. He's a man who many actors, directors, and especially play, playwrights owe their careers to. Say hello to Dennis Zacek. Well, hello right back to you, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Well, I I had to have you on, um, especially when you announced your retirement from as artistic director at Victory Gardens Theater after thirty four years. Yeah, staggering, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is amazing. Uh, uh, could you tell us what theater was like thirty four years ago when when you first uh, took over? Uh, I guess it was nineteen seventy seven for Victory Gardens. What was the state of, of storefront or off-loop theater at that time? Well, it may be hard for people to believe, but there wasn't much on the landscape at all. Uh, there was, of course, the Goodman Theater, and uh, at that particular point in time, it was still very much influenced by uh, a New York mentality. Uh, that was uh, in 1974. And then there were uh, some dinner theaters. The candlelight was in existence, of course, and some and some smaller dinner theaters along Archer Avenue. But in 1974, that's when it all really uh, started to happen. We don't know exactly why. Maybe there was something in the water. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that a number of people... Uh, all at once decided that they wanted to create a Chicago theater scene and uh, and they wanted to create a scene that uh, focused on Chicago actors, uh, Chicago directors, Chicago designers, and Chicago playwrights. Those were the four components. And I don't want to, you know, blow my horn too loudly, but we were the one theater that held on to the fourth component, uh, the playwright. Uh, sure did. Because yeah. I felt that that was an important part of the equation. And a number of other theaters uh, decided pretty quickly that it was much easier to pick a show that had succeeded in, in New York or uh, Los Angeles or in one of the regional theaters or in London and bring it in. But I felt that it was important to have the playwright as as a way to complete the equation. And as I recall, in 74, uh, that was the year that uh, St. Nicholas came into existence. Certainly, Victory Gardens came into existence. Um, Northlight was then called the Evanston Theater Company, but that came into existence in 74. It must have been something in the air or the yeah. water. St. Nicholas, of course which no longer exists, Wisdom Bridge, which no longer exists, and uh, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Court Theater also shifted in 1974 into a uh, professional performing uh, company. So there was quite a bit of activity in that period of time. And before then, there was virtually uh, nothing. There was the Goodman and some dinner theaters, and so there wasn't a lot of places that you could work, and suddenly there were quite a few. Yeah. What got you so interested to to 
grab it by the horns because I know '74 was was your uh, was your debut as a director, right? Well, I was. Uh, I I left Northwestern in 1969 with a PhD, as you may know, and uh, at that particular point in time, I was very interested in uh, pursuing a career in either the academic arena or in the professional arena. The problem was that uh, there wasn't any arena in the city to speak of, you know, aside from the couple theaters that I mentioned. And uh, so I was given a job at uh, Loyola where I was uh, acting chair of the program for a couple of years and, uh, you know, eventually rose to the rank of tenured associate professor. And I longed to uh, participate in the professional arena because I really felt like Chicago was very much my city. So I came knocking on the door at Victory Gardens, and at that particular point in time, there were eight individual founders. Um, So it was a collective. It was it was sort of amazing that anything got done, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's and not a good formula. It, it was a tough, it was a tough way to operate, and I'll see if I can remember them all. It may take some effort, but uh, uh, there was Cecil O'Neill and uh, Roberta McGuire and uh, David Rashi and Cordis Fire and uh, Warren Casey and Mac McGinnis. And Stuart Gordon and June Pekasik. I think I did it. You did. I think I did eight. You did do it. And uh, the story went on that um, in a in a period of time, uh, June became weary of all the uh, responsibilities, and so she dropped out of the collective. And I was given an opportunity to join. And. Uh, at that particular point in time, there was always someone who was uh, selected as the producer of of the organization. And for a while, it was Cecil O'Neill. And then Cecil O'Neill tired of that. And uh, the collective thought about it and said, well, the obvious choice for producer, if he'll do it, is Dennis. So we'll ask him. So I took on the role of producer for a while. and. Uh, it was very difficult to, you know, get these individuals to agree on anything because they came from so many different backgrounds and they had so many different uh, styles of uh, performance and values. Uh, even though they they absolutely were determined to hang on to the four, you know, principal ideas behind the theater. And the riskiest one was the last one, the, the new plays. New plays, yeah, yes. That, that's and, always the hardest to market. Yeah, and, and we did that from day one. Uh, the first play we did, as I recall, was a show called The Velvet Rose, which lasted a couple of weekends. Um, and uh, the organization started out with the idea that each of these eight artists will uh, contribute $1,000. Well... Stewart didn't have a thousand dollars. He had a light board, so it was, it was started with seven thousand dollars and a light board and a little barter <laughs> and a light board. And uh, the Velvet Rose ran a couple of weeks, and uh, 
And then we started scrambling, and we've been scrambling ever since, even though we're now an organization that has a budget of oh, close to $3 million. Um, and in 1977, Alan Turner, who you know is um, a philanthropic figure in the Chicago oh, yeah. theater community. At that point in time, he was a young philanthropic figure. And he came up to me and he said, uh, you know, Dennis, I've looked at theaters throughout the country and I I cannot find any theater that has eight artistic directors. <laughs> there must be a reason for this. So he said, I'll tell you what, if you're willing to be the artistic director, I will develop a board of directors because we didn't even have a board of directors. It was just the collective, and he said, and uh, and I will become your first uh, chair of the board. And I said, that's very generous of you, but what about the other seven people? And Alan, who always had, you know, the lay of the land in sight, he said to me quite succinctly, don't, wel don't worry, they'll welcome it. Don't worry, they'll welcome it. And uh, sure enough, they did. And so I was given the job in uh, 1977, and I've done it to, to this very day. And what is pretty amazing, even though you're not asking, is uh, I never had a contract in 34 wow. years. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just did it. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> never had a contract. Never had a contract. So it's it's been a handshake. Uh, and handshake. A, all, all the time. That's amazing. Very few cities could that happen, but, but that's kind of the Chicago mentality, isn't it? Yeah, and, um, you know, I committed to the task, and um, people sometimes say, what's your secret? I say, well, I do it one day at a time, and, and basically what I do is I keep my appointments and I give it my best shot. And you know, if you do that for 34 years, that's a lot. That's a lot to do. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, but but tell us uh, your emphasis on the new plays when it's so much safer to be doing you know the the canon that's out there. Well, you know it's hard it's hard to know exactly uh, where it came from. I remember uh, being an undergraduate at DePaul, and and one of my mentors was a guy named Al Martin. And he was a very creative guy, and he believed in a number of um, projects. You know, he was interested in the interpretation of prose and the interpretation of poetry, but he also had something that he called creative interpretation, which meant that you or one of your friends wrote the material. And uh, I, I was, uh, I was very interested in that. Uh, kind of development, and then I went to Northwestern, and I started to do uh, some original works written by student direct uh, student playwrights, and directed by student directors, and acted by yours truly. And uh, one of my professors, who shall remain nameless, said, "You know, why are you wasting your time on these new plays when?" There's so many great plays that have already been written by Shaw and Ibsen and Chekhov and Strindberg. And so for years, I, I concentrated 
on, you know, the classics uh, because I wanted to please my professor and because uh, I heeded his advice. And it was very valuable to me because I learned a great deal about structure and about, you know, how the masters worked. Uh, but eventually, uh, no matter what happened, I came right back to where I started. And um, I just feel that, that it's important to have that kind of voice. I mean, it's as immediate as it can be. And over the past 34 years, I've always uh, made an effort to select plays that, that speak to the condition of the people of the city. I think you've done that. Thank you. Tell tell us too how you got uh, your ensemble of of playwrights, how that developed. Yeah, I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, as I recall, it was uh, 1995, circa, and uh, I was at a board meeting on a Saturday, and I was asked to speak extemporaneously about the uh, the Goodman the Steppenwolf, and Victory Gardens. You know, it was a, on the one hand, it was a compare and contrast exercise. But it was also, you know, let's talk about the competition and see where we fit in. So I didn't have any time to prepare. And sometimes that's very good because you you have to, you know, speak from your heart and from the immediacy of your thoughts. And after a while, I said that, you know, aside from things like location and size of uh, budget and uh, number of subscribers, the essential difference has to do with the way the organization is driven. And the Goodman, in my opinion, was a director-driven theater. And, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form making a value judgment. I'm just saying that's what I think it is, and that's I what agree, I think I agree. It was. A lot of people think that. Yeah, and it's it's sort of the model of the regional theater. And at that particular point in time, Bob Falls was the head of the Goodman, and uh, Mike Maggio was still alive, and and Frank Galati was very present. And then he had a number of other uh, directors like Chuck Smith and David Petrarca. And Bob would gather these folks in the room once a year and say, you know, Mike, what do you have in mind? And he would say, well, I, you know, I want to do a, a Wild West version of Taming of the Shrew. You know? <laughs> and they say to Frank, and he would say, well, I've got a Gertrude Stein piece I'm working on. And, and Chuck would say, you know, I, I want to do a new piece by August Wilson or whomever. And eventually, you know, the the scorecard would be filling up and, and Bob would say, well, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> I want to direct as well. And so this is what I'm going to do. And, and they pretty much had a season. And um, then we went to Steppenwolf and I said that I thought that Steppenwolf was an actor-driven theater. And Martha Levy, of course, is a fabulous artistic director, as is Bob Falls. Uh, she has to consider her ensemble of actors and pick plays that uh, provide roles that are, you know, of interest to this ensemble. Otherwise, why have an ensemble? Yeah, and they and they've done that with a lot of a lot of big plays, big plays, yeah. and of course, uh, 
But uh, within her ensemble, uh, there are certain people then and now who have a higher profile. So, you know, if, uh, for example, Gary Sinise calls up Martha and says, you know, I'm going to be back in town and I really want to do One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, I guess what uh, show is going to be chosen as part of the season. You can bet on that one. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if if John Malkovich says, I want to do The Libertine, you know, you can pretty much count on that being done as well. So she goes through the process and she takes care of the people who are uh, the bigger draws first and then, uh, you know, select shows that fit the rest of the ensemble. And, uh, and the Victory Gardens drive in my opinion, came from the emphasis on the playwright. So uh, Alvin Katz, who was then the, the chair of the, of the board of directors, said to me, so in other words, what we have is an ensemble of writers. And I was so happy to be off the hook, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that I just said, yes, that's absolutely right. And then uh, a couple of days passed, and, you know, uh, news travels fast in this business. And all of a sudden, the phone started ringing. And um, there were people like Jeffrey Sweet and Jim Sherman and Steve Carter and Doug Post. And, and they were saying, when was the ensemble established? And <laughs> Y'all wanted in. Huh? And am I part of the ensemble, <laughs> you know? And I just thought about it, and I... I decided, you know, I think it's about time that we do establish uh, an ensemble. So I I settled on uh, 12 originally. There may or may not be something biblical in that. I'm not I'm not sure. Um uh, and I didn't have a, I didn't want to have a bunch of middle-aged white guys because I, I'm very interested in diversity. So uh, at that point in time, um, the youngest of the 12 was uh, John Logan, who was in his 30s at the time. And the eldest is a, an African-American writer, Steve Carter, who was then in his, in his late 60s. He's now 80, so it's, you know, that's well over 15 years ago. And everyone else was in between, so that was the diversity in terms of age. And I had uh, I had three women who are still part of the ensemble: uh, Gloria Boncuni, um and of course uh, Claudia Allen. And uh, I'm I'm blanking on, on the third name. Um, I didn't. I can't help you with that one because I didn't write that one down. But I will. We'll come up with it. We will come up yeah. with it. Um, and and then um, I had uh, three uh, three people who were people of color. And even though I didn't realize it at the at the time, I had uh, I had three members who were either gay or lesbian. So it was quite a bit of diversity. Um, uh, Christine Thatcher, of course, is right. the third, and a, and a wonderful. You come up with that. <laughs> yeah, it was a lapse, Christine. I hope you forgive me. Um, you're on my mind constantly. <laughs> so, and and so uh, 
you know, from that point on, everything became a lot easier because you had these writers who were all committed to uh, this theater and committed. And you had made them publicly people knew they were part of the ensemble. Absolutely, absolutely. So they, if they submit, if I submitted a play and the ensemble members submitted a play, they would get first crack at it? Uh, they they would get i don't produce everything that they write but uh the idea and there's no once again there's no contract between me and the playwrights the idea is that uh, they show me their work first and i i do my best to produce their work and there isn't any question that uh once that ensemble was established we uh moved inexorably to the uh, 2001 Tony Award, which we received in that particular year, because everything became much more focused, and the idea of collaboration from the ensemble benefited it enormously. And then, of course, once we won the Tony Award, I actually shouldn't say that. I should say received the Tony Award, because that's what they prefer that you say uh there wasn't any question that that led to the big campaign and the fundraising effort to uh to build uh victory gardens at the biograph where we have you know state-of-the-art theater the zachik mcveigh which is wonderful to have named in yeah in your lifetime yeah sure for for, you and your wife yes. yes my wife and myself and then, of course, we're now seated in the Richard Christensen, which is a this is a dynamite beautiful yeah. space. It seats a little bit over a hundred people, and um, and then we have state of the art offices right through that door. So the complex is is quite complete, and uh, it, it really wouldn't have happened, I don't think, had I not uh, made that choice to establish the ensemble. Uh, is this was. Was this one of the first theaters in America to, to do with uh, an ensemble of uh, playwrights? You, you know, know, it may be it may be one of the only. One uh, of the only. It's it certainly. Uh, if there's more, there are very few. That's for certain. Um, if I were king of the theater world, uh, I would suggest that every theater in the country have at least one resident writer. Uh, we not only have twelve. We're now up to uh, 14 with uh, Nilo Cruz, uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Nilo Cruz, and Joel Drake-Johnson. Neither of them know who's 13, because that's the unlucky number. (laughs) So 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 it goes to 12 to 14. It went from 12 to 14, exactly. Uh, Tell us some of the plays that you've done that that you're proud of. Well, there's so many. I know, I know. That's a tough question, and I or that are very memorable, or that 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 you know stand out in your mind. Yeah. Well, I th- I, I certainly think the one that comes immediate to mind um, is is Bojess, written by uh, James Sherman, which uh, ran for eleven months in Chicago and played to standing room houses and uh, and then went on to New York where it uh, landed at the Lambs Theater 
and it it played for two and a half years. And to this day, it holds the record uh, as the longest-running show in the history of the Lambs Theater. So I'm quite proud of that. The interesting thing, if I may just talk a little bit about uh, Jim, because it says something about me as well, at the risk of maybe embarrassing myself. Um, We did, uh, Jim and I did a production of a show called The God of Isaac, uh, which was quite quite a hit. And then we uh, we did a show called Mr. 80%, which was another hit. And then we did a show called The Escape Artist, in which Jim not only wrote the piece, but he performed in the play as well. And, uh, you know, very frankly, it was a bomb. And and Jim was devastated, uh, and one day he came up to me um, in the theater and basically said, you know, what am I going to do? And I said, well, I think what we're going to do is concentrate on your comeback. And uh, I said, we're going we're gonna to take more time than we usually take, and we're going to look at it uh, more carefully than we usually do. And um, sure enough, it worked. And and Bojest was an enormous hit as a result of that. So I, I believe in, you know, um, ongoing support of, of these writers. I don't uh, cast them aside when perhaps a show doesn't work as well as it should because, uh, you know, it's a process and there's no guarantee of it. I think... Um, a number, uh, and I'm going to omit so many, of course, but uh, Pekong was an extraordinary production. That was written by uh, Steve Carter, who is uh, still the eldest of our writers. And I don't know if you saw it, but it no, was I a, did not. It was a Caribbean version of the Medea tale. And he gave it to me, and he said, I hope that... Uh, you don't like it. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, why do you say that? And he said, because I need at least 16 people. <laughs> and uh, I did like it. And so we were at the greenhouse at the time, and it was you know, far too limiting a space to present the work. So uh, we took it to the Ruth Page, and it was an enormous success. And and then I eventually um, uh, took it to Newark, where it would play at the Newark Symphony Hall, and uh, I received uh, some very uh, strong praise from the New York Times. That's something awesome. like flamboyantly directed wow. by Dennis Ajek, which is better than you know his usual pristine work. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you know certainly. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on because every writer is important, but Lonnie Carter and and the sovereign state of Boogity Boogity was uh, a wonderful, groundbreaking work because, as you know, Lonnie is such a wordsmith. Yes, and I, I, I brought something into the arena that at first the audience uh, found to be pretty challenging, but the more that I do Lonnie's work... Uh, the more they seem open to it. And uh, he's a brilliant guy, and uh, 
it was a wonderful opportunity to not only work with Lonnie, who's a white man, but to work with a cast of African-American actors, which I always find to be uh, very, very exciting. Yeah, and, and that, that show begs to be remounted. Well, it has been remounted. It, it, it was remounted uh, recently at the, um, at the greenhouse. I'm not sure that we should remount it for a while. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be calling the shots in a couple of weeks. But it's interesting because the audience uh, will often say to you, uh, why don't you revive some of those shows? And um, sometimes when you do, they say, well... You know, I wanted you to do a revival, but not that one. <laughs> it's never the one, yeah. Uh, so that that. How about some of the actors you got to start to uh, William Peterson and Dillinger? Yeah, you started his career, didn't you? I did. I did. Uh, I'm happy to say, and I'm also proud to say that he considers me to be a friend and a, a mentor to this very day. Um, we were, I was at Northwestern and I was, uh, you know, working there during the summer, even though I was artistic director here during the year, it was a way to, you know, provide some extra income because, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money as artistic director in the early days. And, um, it, it was, a, it was a way to, you know, increase the, the cash flow a little bit. And I, I was working with the high school institute known as the, the cherubs and, I would often take a break and go to Burger King, which was on the periphery of the campus. And there was this young man that came up to me and he said, are you Dennis Sachek? And I said, yes, I am. He said, my name is Billy Peterson. And I wonder if I could have a moment with you and if we could talk a little bit about theater. So we talked for the better part of an hour. And he said, thank you very much. And I said, very nice to meet you. And Next couple of days, I had another break, and he was there again. <laughs> and so that conversation started uh, on the Northwestern campus, just outside the Northwestern campus. And uh, it has been, has been continuous for, for many, many years. And, of course, the first time that I cast him was uh, in, in Dillinger, um, where he was a very young man. And, uh, and of course, recently, uh, he starred with, uh, Maddie Hawkinson in, uh, David Harrower's Blackbird. That was an awesome show. Right. It was a sensational production and, uh, a huge hit. We didn't know we could make so much money. The phone lines melted. And, uh, I think we, I think we sold about $540,000 of single tickets. So. Wow. Uh, but in addition to that, I thought it was an extraordinary production. So that's another one. And, you know, the longer I talk, the but each each of the writers has had a production that either I produced or I directed that has been just uh, quite memorable. Okay. In the interest of time, these, this is great stuff. Uh, you worked for many years with your wife, Marcy McVeigh, and with Sandy Shiner. Shinner. Shinner, I'm She sorry. prefers Shinner. Shinner, okay. I prefer Zacek, she prefers Shinner. Okay. <laughs> it's it's amazing how many people will just not pronounce our names correctly, or the way we want them to, but, you know, our friends do, and you're our friend. Okay. So. 
I, I, I hate when I do that. That's okay. But how was how how did that dynamic work? Uh, uh, these, these are two two women who really know their theater and are really organized people. And one being your wife, uh, that can be tough. Well, at the risk of being facetious, you know, I, I try to surround myself by the most beautiful, talented women I know. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad uh, idea. No, it's not at all a bad idea. Uh, actually, uh, I think it worked quite well. Um, Marcy was actually the first employee on the staff. She was actually hired uh, before I was. She auditioned for a part, and... Uh, she didn't get the role. Uh, and then Cecil O'Neill uh, said to her, are you looking for a job? Because we could use someone that would be, you know, the general manager, which eventually became managing director. So she had the job first. And for years, people didn't realize that, that we were married. And uh, then when I was given the task, we... Uh, we began the collaboration, and that continued until until of course she retired and i thought it I thought it worked out quite well. She of course, is an incredibly um, dedicated person, very smart uh enormously generous, perhaps one of the most generous people in the world and Sandy is uh, also uh, extremely dedicated and uh, you know they uh they were there to provide guidance for me when, for example, even though I didn't realize that I might be straying from the mission or, you know, mm -hmm. choosing to do something that might be uh, not quite in keeping with the original uh, intention of the organization. So they, they've always been very helpful to me in terms of uh, being a sounding board, and, and they've been a, of enormous support. And but uh, you know, there's there was a trust that certainly was always present between my wife and myself, and between Sandy and me. Uh, and we were all on the same team for for many many years, working to you know provide uh, a theater once again that reflected uh, not only the condition of the people, but also reflected the people because we were always very much interested in diversity yes what advice would you give to the man who's replacing you well <laughs> um he, he i his name of course is che yu and he's a very intelligent and charming and talented uh, young man he happens happens to be a playwright we we've met and we've talked and uh I think I made it uh, clear to him that he shouldn't try to be Dennis Sachek because, you know, he should be Che Yu. Um, and uh, I've done what I could to provide him with the idea of the heritage of the organization. Um, because one of the tricks, and it was a trick for me and it will be a, a trick for him, is that, you know, once you get into a facility like this, which is a big, hungry mouth to feed, you have to uh, work really hard to make sure that you don't become something that you never intended to be. You know, that's that's important. You're it right. Is, stay on the mission. Stay yeah. on the mission, and, and you uh, certainly have done that. 
and you know the the idea is not to pick plays that that sell the most tickets because you never know what that's going to be anyway but the idea is uh, to create art that's that's the purpose Amen. of Victor Gardens Theater Amen. and to and in the process to lose as little money as possible that that's great advice uh what are your future plans in our last couple of moments well of course i'm going to uh, hopefully spend some time with my wife who is uh now semi retired she's the interim head of uh, theater management program not not the actual program but the educational arm of it at DePaul University she teaches the class and mentors students and you know we'll travel um and spend time together and hopefully get a, get an opportunity to relax and uh, enjoy each other's company but i have jobs lined up i i'm not uh, i'm not retiring as an artist uh, Good. Let me just say this uh, because I think it might be somewhat interesting, and uh, I think the the young artist um, often has two concerns, and one is whether or not he's going to be able to eat and you know pay the rent. Uh, and while I'm not a rich man, I have enough assets, so uh, my wife and my son and I don't have to worry too much about that. And the other, the other concern is whether or not you're going to leave a mark, you know. And at the, at the risk of uh, committing the sin of pride, I I think I have accomplished quite a bit. You have. So uh, those two things are taken care of, and so now I can concentrate on projects that I I want to do. And I've got <clears throat> I've got five jobs in the works. They're not directing. Well, yes and no. I mean, they're they're not all secure because we have to wait for yeah. approval on things. But that's enough for next year. I mean, you know, I don't need any more than five projects. I'm doing uh, uh, Never the Sinner in the fall, which is a John Logan play, one of his best plays. And um, it was a play that I was in years ago playing Clarence Darrow, an award-winning performance, I'm happy to say. Uh, and I'm doing it with two faculty members, um, Dan Cantor and Henry Godinez, who are going to play the two attorneys. And then uh, with a cast of very, very talented students from Northwestern. And then after that, um, I will hopefully be going to uh, the Montgomery Theater in Philadelphia area. And I'll be doing Jacob and Jack. Written by James Sherman. Yeah, it's uh, terrific play. Yes. Yeah, featuring my old friend uh, Richard Klein, uh, and uh, so he'll hopefully be part of that ensemble. And then I'm returning to the boards. I'm going to be acting. Are you? Really yes. Terrific? Yes. I last time I acted was in Arsenic and Old Lace at Northwestern, where I was guest artist last fall under the direction of Frank Galati, and. Uh, I'm going to be doing a new play called Love Me Some Amnesia, written by James Still, who's a very talented writer and um, the resident writer at Indiana Rep. And uh, 
it'll be done in the early part of 2012, and, and it may be done in this very space. It'll be produced by American Blues. Oh, terrific. And then I perhaps will be going to Athens, Ohio, as a distinguished guest artist to teach a class and direct a play. That's not been finalized, but wow. there's talk of it. And then I've been asked to go to Loyola, where I am uh, full professor emeritus, uh, to teach a class, a master class in the acting of Harold Pinter. So my calendar is pretty, it sure pretty is. full. Wow, this is this has been unbelievable. Uh, congratulations on on such a great career, and and I know I've talked to many people around town who who say they owe their entire career to you. Well, that's great, and uh, it's. It's been a wonderful adventure and uh, a thrilling one full of many, many highs and just just a few lows. Well, thank God we're going to still see you around, Tom. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, go see a play this week.